Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for this episode of Nine to Thrive HR. I'm your host, Aubrey Witte. Today, we are featuring the fourth of eight podcasts produced in partnership with SAP SuccessFactors. Each features an expert in the field of HR, and we'll explore some of the most pressing issues facing talent management today. In one of our previous podcasts, we spoke with Dr. Stephen Hunt, the Vice President of Human Capital Management Research at SAP SuccessFactors, about social performance management. Today, we're thrilled to have him back in our studio to give his take on performance management trends and best practices, both what you need to know to make the process less painful and more effective. Steve's role is focused on guiding the development and application of technology-enabled solutions to create thriving, agile, and engaged workforces. He has over 25 years of experience working with a variety of human capital management applications, and he's played a pivotal role in creating systems that have improved productivity and engagement of millions of employees across large and small organizations. So Steve, welcome. It's so great to have you back. Yeah, thanks. Good to be here. So I'm just going to jump right in, right? You've been studying and analyzing performance for a long time now, and recently you published a white paper about the 15 lessons learned from 10 years of working in performance management. So we're not going to go through every single one of those lessons, but we are going to hit some of the highlights today. And I'm curious from your perspective, what was the most surprising thing that you found in your research around performance management? I think the thing that led me to write this paper was the variety of how companies do it. Um, I had a very sort of unique perspective at SuccessFactors. I think the history of sort of why I joined the organization and what led me to write this paper, or sort of what gives me the right to write a paper like this, is I was brought into SuccessFactors 10 years ago, and the company, why would a technology company hire a psychologist? That's my background. And what they did, because they realized early on there were huge differences in how much value customers were getting from our performance management technology, which was the original solution SuccessFactors came out with. Now we do like everything, but that's where we started. And some customers are talking about, wow, it's increasing engagement and you know productivity, and others are like, we just automated a lousy process. And so they really said, well, why is this? Because this has a big impact on our company, because we're a software-as-a-service company. So I basically, and I've continued to do it for over 10 years now, started talking to customers and looking at customers at how do you use performance management technology. What I discovered was there's, one, no best way to do it. What works for one company may not work for another. Um, But that there's a huge variety in how to do it. And I started to get this realization seeing so many, not just where companies were successful, but also seeing where companies struggled or failed or struggled to make changes, let me take out some real insights on what is it that makes companies successful at performance management and why is it so hard? And that's what led me to write this paper. Great. And in doing some of your research, was there any finding that really stuck out to you as the thing that you were either most surprised by or just really you felt validated (laughs) when you saw the data? I think the biggest was the recognition that performance management is not one thing. I think people used to think of it as one process because they kind of associate with one form. In fact, performance management is three very distinct things. It is setting expectations, providing ongoing coaching, and then evaluating people. And it really, I think the reason it's hard, though, and this is sort of related to understanding these three distinct things, is that performance management requires dealing with some very fundamental challenges that don't necessarily line up well with each other. What do you mean by that? Can you explain a little bit about those fundamental challenges that don't align? 
Yeah, there's something I talk about, and it's one of, in the paper, and it's called what I call the performance management or talent management dilemma, which is if you're trying to create a high-performance organization and high-performance workforce, there's two things that are really true that you really have to focus on. One is people are amazing in our ability to grow and develop. We can always do more, and our past behavior does not really totally determine what we could do in the future. You know, you're not limited by the past. We can always learn more things, and companies that are really successful in maximizing performance believe in this growth mindset. They really say, hey, we can always be better. Let's invest in you. On the other hand, when you're managing a workforce, you have to recognize that not everyone is all the same. Some people have talents that other people don't have. Some people can make more contributions. They're more motivated for whatever reason. And it makes sense to invest more in people that contribute more to the organization. If you will, that sort of pay-for-performance kind of mentality, but not just strict pay-for-performance, but really saying, look, if people are contributing more, if they're more passionate, we should give them more opportunities. They want to do more, let's help them do more. If people, for whatever reason, are not as into the work, we probably shouldn't spend as much time and money on them. Um, and even in some cases, you know, kind of have to encourage them maybe to pursue jobs elsewhere. So if you want to invest in people based on their likely future performance, you're like, wow, some people are likely to contribute more than each other. Well, how do we determine people's future performance? The best predictor of future performance is past performance. That is, if you want to know how somebody's going to act in the future, look at how they acted in the past. This whole concept of managing differences in performance is based on the truth that our past behavior absolutely dictates our future behavior. Well, if you see in those two, there's a fundamental thing. Growth mindset is our past behavior doesn't dictate our future behavior. We can always do more, but effective talent management decision-making recognizes that past behavior does predict future behavior. That's the dilemma. How do you balance both of these things? Because they're both true to a point. The fact that people can always do more, but what people did in the past tells you a lot about what they're likely to do in the future. That, that is definitely a dilemma that I think a lot of managers and leaders can empathize with. So what is your advice to addressing that dilemma? Should you try and just take a balanced approach and look over here and then look over there or what? It's being honest and upfront about it and recognizing, I think, one, you're never going to get it absolutely right. Uh, it's, it's always a balance. If I look at the most successful companies in performance management, um, they're never done. It's like, we did it, now our company, as your workforce evolves, as technology changes, as the business environment changes, you should be constantly be looking at it and thinking about how can we tweak it and do better. I think the other is, to be very honest, that you do have these two sides. Um, one of the big failures, well, I'll go through, there were two major failures in performance management. Ten years ago, the big failure in performance management was it all was focused on evaluation. It was all about who are the A players and sort of stack ranking, all this stuff, which didn't really work. It didn't really reflect the growth. It overlooked the fact that people can be coached and engaged. It just emphasized very much evaluation. And so companies sort of swung the pendulum to the other side. Let's get rid of ratings, and it's all about coaching, and everyone can do more. But that didn't work either because they ignored the fact that we do have to make these decisions that require comparing people against each other. So the challenge, I'd say the best thing for companies is just to be open and honest about it. Say, yeah, we do believe you can do more, but also your past behavior is going to influence how we make decisions about you. And we're going to try to balance that out. Be really transparent. And what's interesting in the research that we've done is the companies that are most successful at creating coaching cultures do not pretend they don't rate their employees. They say, yes, we do evaluate you, but it happens at a certain time, and it's not the coaching. And I, I can give like a really sort of good example of this in a second if you'd like me to. Yeah, I think that that would be helpful to demonstrate this. 
Okay, I'm going to give this this is an example. I think that I've used because I've talked to so many different companies, and I came up with this, and I've used it probably I don't know scores of times trying to explain what is this difference between the evaluation component of performance management and the coaching component, and how should they be tied together but still kept separate enough so that one doesn't interfere with the other. The analogy I use is coaching youth sports. I coached kids soccer and kids lacrosse for years, and you know, our goal as youth coaches is to, you know, give the kids a good experience, let them learn more, but also, you know, you wanted to have kids that were really interested in pursuing the sports at a higher level to also feel supported in sort of going farther in the sport, but you also wanted to do it in a way that made the other kids that weren't, you know, never going to be superstar athletes still feel appreciated, have a good time. That's really important. Well, if you look at this, it was really interesting because it was about balancing these two sides, these things I'm talking about. On one hand, in practice, I was evaluating the kids all the time, but it was entirely from a coaching growth perspective. So I would look at kids and I'd say, hey, you got a great shot, but you really should pass the ball more. I would never tell that child that they had the best shot on the team because they just shoot more, nor would I tell them they're the biggest ball hog on the team because that wouldn't be very developmental either, right? But I always gave them feedback relative to that individual child. What could they do differently relative to themselves? But in the league that I coached in, we also had all-star teams where we would put together teams of the best players from all the different recreational leagues, and we'd play other cities. And it was really important on that all-star team that you got the best kids out there because it would be bad for a child to be out there if they really weren't at that level, if they weren't at sort of the top of the game. It would be bad for them. It would be bad for their teammates. And so, you know, you really had to sort of select who are the best kids from all the recreational teams. Well, the way we would do this is we would get together with the other coaches of the rec teams, and we would talk absolutely in evaluative terms. Who's got the best shot? Yeah, he's got a great shot, but he never passes the ball relative to these other players. We would have a very, very evaluative discussion of these children. We would never allow the children in the room when we were having that conversation. There would be no developmental value for them to be in there to hear, you know, have that discussion. But we, you know, because it was all about comparing them against each other. Now, the thing that's interesting is. Though we did tell the kids they knew that the stuff that we were talking about when we were selecting the all-star team was exactly the same stuff we were talking about when we were coaching in a practice. So, and this mattered particularly for those kids that really did want to get to a higher level of competition. They want the kids that wanted to be on the all-star team. So you know, if I went back and the child said, hey, coach, how come I didn't make the all-star team? I'd say, well, you know how we were talking about you got a good shot, but you got to pass more? That's really the key. And the child would know there was a connection between the coaching that they were getting in practice, which was not evaluative, and the decisions that were being made about who gets to advance their career, if you will, that were highly evaluative. So even though they weren't present in that decision-making process for picking the all-star teams and, if you will, paying people or promoting people or whatever, they knew how that process worked, they knew who was in the room, and they knew what was being discussed. And they knew what was being discussed in that conversation was the same thing they were being coached on in practice. To me, that analogy illustrates the fundamental challenge of performance management. How do you balance those two worlds? No, that's really well put. And also I think it's, it's important and it goes to show you that, you know, when an employee can see that alignment, right, and can understand what it is they're being evaluated against and what that means and how the feedback they're getting on the job kind of funnels in to that um, and supports it, it just creates a lot more clarity overall and clarity, again, driving, um, you know, loyalty and understanding to what is happening. I think one of the most interesting things that you found in your research is that 
you mentioned that performance management is more about what you create than it is about what you eliminate. Um, so can you kind of expound on that a little bit? What do you mean by it's more about creation rather than elimination? Um, is there a mistake that leaders make when they think about those two things? Yeah, and this kind of goes back to this change. I think what had happened over time is companies had struggled to create better coaching and better evaluation, so they kept designing more and more complicated forms, thinking if we can come up with the magic form, we can finally evaluate people accurately or force managers to coach them. You know, if we have them enough structured, you know, review meetings or something. And I think as one of the customers said, this is the wrong way to go about it. The the issue is we need to go from trying to solve it with structured forms to trying to solve this through more effective structured conversations and decisions. And so what doesn't work, and the company kind of did this well, a lot of them got rid of these forms, which I think was good because sometimes these forms that had kind of been built over time were pretty horrendous and they really didn't work. But just getting rid of your performance appraisal form is not going to get managers to start coaching employees, nor is it going to provide clarity to employees about how decisions are made that affect their lives in a very tangible way related to pay, promotions, things like that. And that's what I mean by create. The companies that are more successful focus a lot on how do we put methods in place that, one, support, encourage, and ensure managers and employees are actually having effective coaching conversations. So like a lot of the continuous performance management technology is really useful for this. It sort of reminds managers to have these discussions. It keeps track of what's going on. It also gives the company clarity into our managers and employees really having an ongoing dialogue about coaching and performance. And then on the other side, companies are putting a lot more emphasis on creating structured meetings where managers come together and have that sort of dialogue around who are the high-impact people in the organization, are we managing them effectively, how might we manage them differently, are there people that are struggling, and making sure that the managers are doing this, and then being able to communicate to employees that this is happening. This is what I mean by create, really have focus on creating those conversations, but because what does not work and actually that can fail miserably, was uh, saying, let's just get rid of the process that's not working now and pretend everything will get better. Um, It's a lot of work to get managers to do effective coaching. It's a lot of work to have really constructive discussions about difference in employee performance. Um, It's well worth doing, but it takes investment to make it happen. That's a great point. Um, And you kind of already answered my next question, but, you know, in this push for eliminating ratings in performance management, um, has your research demonstrated that this is not really the right approach or has it demonstrated that it can be the right approach, but only if it is um, alongside of some efforts to try and streamline what's going in place of that traditional rating system? Yeah, I, I, this is interesting. What we found actually is the companies that are more transparent about you know when they're going to have sort of like evaluation conversations that often creates more of a demand if a, if a manager knows they're going to have to have this conversation with employees. They think more about well, I better not just wait and because it'll be a terrible conversation if I don't talk about issues before I have to talk about these issues. I think when you get at coaching, the big issue is most companies did not promote managers to management positions because they were good at coaching. They were promoted for something that had nothing to do with their coaching skills, and they didn't train managers how to coach, and they didn't really hold them accountable for coaching. So it's no wonder that a lot of managers don't coach. And they don't know how to do it. And this is the thing also about feedback. Feedback, if not delivered the right way, does not improve one's working relationship. You know, there's definitely a right and a wrong way to do it. So I think what you really have to focus on here is – How do we 
support managers and get them better at coaching. It's not that managers don't want to coach. It's that they don't know how to coach. If you don't know how to coach, you probably shouldn't coach. And so a lot of what goes into this is being very clear on supporting managers on coaching. Now, here's the good news, though, about this. To be, I mean, to be a phenomenal coach, yeah, that's skills and capabilities, and some people will probably never have it. But to not suck, to not be a really bad manager, we know how to avoid that. It's not that complicated. Set clear goals, give behavioral-based feedback, recognize people for what they did. Very, very simple things. And this is what companies can do now with technology. They can make sure managers are doing these basic things, you know, sort of avoid really bad management. And I really emphasize this. You know, one of the phrases I hate is, uh, you know, employees don't quit companies, they quit managers. That's not true. Employees quit companies that employ lousy managers. And if a company has lousy managers, the only reason why they do is because they tolerate it. We know how to manage in an effective, not in a great way. And if a company has bad managers, it's entirely the fault of the leadership of that company for basically allowing it. But the good news is this is changing. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And I like how you're really kind of turning the tables a little bit on organizations. Like, isn't it time that we get past this idea that there are just bad managers and, and there's nothing you can do about it? Because there is. Um, there are a lot of things that you can do. Yeah, it's always funny when I hear that. It's because I'm like, well, you know, the managers aren't doing what they're supposed to. I'm like, well, who hired them, Mr. CEO? <laughs> you know? Right. And who's giving them that feedback? We kind of harken yeah. back to the point. Yeah. Exactly. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about data because I think that this is a, a sticking point for a lot of individuals that are, you know, either new to the performance management system or trying to redesign their own performance management processes. What are the different types of data that you believe organizations should be using to inform their performance management process in order to be the most effective way that it can? Um, I think the one of the first ones, and a lot of it's really, really basic stuff, um, one, goals. The foundation of effective performance management is people understanding what it is they're actually supposed to do. And you think that would be really obvious, but a lot of employees, it's one of the most common complaints employees say, which is not really clear to me what I'm supposed to do. I just kind of show up every day and react to things. So really effective goal setting and not goal setting the way it was done traditionally, which was more like a contract, like, you know, we're going to give you goals in January and come back, ignore them for 12 months and come back and see if you hit them and then decide whether or not we want to pay you more. Um, that process probably never worked very well, and it certainly doesn't work in a fast-moving world where it's unrealistic to think that what's important in January is going to be exactly the same 12 months later. Um, I mean, there may be certain outcomes like commitments to Wall Street that can't change, but, you know, in terms of the day-to-day things we do, it, it changes all the time. What's really important is how do you make sure that managers and employees are having conversations so there's clear alignment between them on what is important, what should I be focusing on. That and having metrics that tell you that managers and employees have those clear goals, that they exist, that they're being updated and revisited, that is probably, I would say, one of the biggest foundations um, for effective performance management because everything else comes out of that. I mean, we talk about giving feedback and coaching. It's all around goals and expectations. We talk about evaluating people. It's around what they contributed. So that, that I'd say, is the big one, you know, using data that tells you, in fact, managers and employees have clarity on goals and expectations. Now, that's the foundation. Once you get into that, once you start generating data from performance management, particularly good insights into performance of employees, 
Who is having a bigger impact? Why are they having a bigger impact? What are the behaviors people are effective or ineffective at? You can learn all kinds of things. You can learn the strength of your workforce. You can start doing things like tracking turnover by performance level, which is a super powerful metric. Um, you know, hey, if your high performers are turning over faster than your low performers, you've got an issue. It doesn't matter what sort of company you are. Um, so you can track a lot of things once you get that. But I think it starts, though, with um, just having some really basic data. And the last point I would make on this is whatever data you have, start using it. Uh, this is something that's been shown out in research that the more you use performance management data, the more accurate it gets. The reason a lot of that data historically wasn't accurate is that nobody ever actually used it for anything. And, and it's sort of a chicken the egg. If you don't use it, people won't take it seriously, but they won't take it seriously unless you start using it. You know? And so you, know, you kind of got to jump in and start using it at some point. That, that's a really good point and one I did not think about, but you're right. I mean, if nobody is actually leveraging the data, then it's really hard to even see where there are errors or really go through the process of cleaning it, et cetera. Yeah, and it's funny because when managers um, complain about the data, I'm like, look, you guys provided it. It, and it sort of says, oh, it's subjective. We can't use it for real decision-making. I always go, yeah, well, what about your budgeting process? How totally objective is that, you know? <laughs> you use that data to make real business decisions. So part of it is just saying, look, we need data on the performance of our employees to make effective decisions about the workforce. And managers, it's your job to do this. Now, you should provide them, like, tools and calibration methods to help them do it. But at the end of the day, um, saying, oh, this data is inaccurate and using that as an excuse not to use it would be like telling the CFO, oh, our budget forecasts aren't accurate. They're all subjective, so don't use it. The CFO would say, I don't care. I'm going to use it anyhow. Right. Good point. So one thing that strikes me about goals is that some organizations have moved to a very public um, demonstration of KPIs where everything is kind of shared across the board. Do you believe that there's such a thing as too much transparency within performance management or is there kind of uh, the right balance and what would be your advice to achieve that? Well, there's definitely not too much transparency on goals. Um, there are few, there are very few best practices, but that is one of them. People's goals should be public. There should be no secret what you're in the company to do. Everyone should be able to see what everyone else is doing. That doesn't mean your performance against those goals should be public. I don't think that's true because um, there's all kinds of issues that can get into that. But how can people collaborate if they don't know what each other's working on? And I am amazed by how many companies do not have public goals. It blows my mind away. It's like you would think, you know, hey, if I'm a CEO, I want people to know what's important to me. I want them to be able to see my goals. I want to be able to see their goals. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's interesting, too, because when you go to public goals, employees will look. Employees will look at their bosses, bosses, bosses' goals and say, oh, that's what's important to them. And I think that's so important. I mean, it's, and you can hide the confidential information, you know, if you have it. You know, you can, you know there's ways to do that. But... There, uh, going to the point that you cannot have too much transparency around what people are there to do. You want people to know what you're there to do so they can help you. Don't, there should be no secret about that. Where it gets more hard is transparency around things like evaluations and differences between people. And there you do really need to be careful because you can get people to switch into what's called a fixed mindset from a growth mindset where it's like, well, I'm a loser, you know, or I'm a winner and therefore I'm better than you and I got a gold star and you didn't. You can get into a lot of really bad dynamics. So why in an ideal world, you know, it would be nice to have more transparency. I think when it gets on the evaluation side, um, you got to be really, really careful with it. I think what you should be transparent, though, is not 
about the ratings people get or the categorizations they get, but the processes that are used. You know, if it, every company, this is interesting. I give an example. Um, when I was working on gender equity thing, I heard a woman once say, you know, if you're a high-performing, highly-valued female talent, particularly if you're early in your career, a question you should ask a company before you even join it is, tell me exactly how you're going to evaluate my performance so that I can make sure that career decisions around compensation and promotion are going to be based on what I actually do and not biased impressions of what a woman can or cannot do. But I thought it was a really good point. It should be up front with companies. These are the rules of the game. Yes, we make decisions about you. We have to, and this is how we do it. And if you want to influence these decisions, this is what you need to do. Going back to my sports coach, the kids I coach knew, hey, we're going in on Thursday, and we're going to select the all-star team, and this is who's going to be in the room, and this is the kind of stuff we're going to talk about. If they wanted to know, we'd absolutely tell them the process. If they said, can I be in the room? We'd say, no, not possibly. There's no way. But we'll tell you that we are going to do it, and this is how it's going to happen. Um, you know, If people don't know how you make decisions, how can they influence them, and how can they have control over their own careers? Be transparent about it. Great. Thank you. I mean, to me, I think that's the biggest takeaway, right? It's when you are more transparent, you help people develop a sense of empowerment and ownership over their own careers. And we know from a lot of psychology research that when you have that ownership and you are empowered to make those decisions, then, you know, you're going to be more thoughtful in how you're spending your time and what you think your value is and also what your contributions are. Yeah, absolutely. And I will tell you, too, the reason that companies a lot of historically haven't been transparent, especially around things like compensation, is frankly, they aren't making decisions the way they should be. It's not reflective of, you know, they cannot explain it in a way that employees would be okay with it. But the good news is that's changing. Thank you, Internet. (laughs) (laughs) They're being forced to be transparent. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. The tide is turning. So... Yep. Broad-based question for you to wrap up here. Where do you see performance management going next? It's gone through a couple different evolutions just in the past 10 years or so. Um, What do you really wish for it when you kind of think about it as a a discipline or a topic? Well, I think two things. I think one on the core fundamentals, like, you know, being better at setting goals, providing behavioral feedback, being transparent about how we make decisions. You know, we have a long way to go on that. It's not like uh, it's a simple thing to achieve. I think on that, we're just going to keep seeing companies get better and better at it. And it's already getting to this point that if you're a company that doesn't do these things well, you're going to struggle to get talent because people... This is a healthy learning work environment. People want to work in places where they know what they're supposed to do. Their job has a sense of purpose. They get feedback and recognition for it. Um, this is, uh, and so increasingly, if the companies don't do performance management well, they're just going to end up having to hire the people that can't get jobs anywhere else. You know, <laughs> not a good talent strategy. Um, so I think that's good. We have a long way to go on that, but it's moving. I think the next big leap, and there's a lot of sort of operational challenges, is going to be more team-based management. Um, particularly management of relationships and how do we uh, actively manage relationships between two people where, you know, an effective relationship is not the fault of one person or another. You have to balance both sides. And I think we're going to see more focus on relationship management, but uh, that's a whole nother level. Um, But I do think we're going to see more and more of that over the coming years. Great. Well, that is all that we have time for today. But Steve, thank you so much for a really great conversation on a topic I think that is near and dear to a lot of people, especially if it happens to be your performance review cycle time in your organization. Absolutely. 
Yeah, happy to, uh, happy to have the discussion. Thanks. Great. And I want to remind all of our listeners that the white paper um, that Steve recently published on this topic is called Transforming Performance Management, 15 Lessons from 10 Years of Customer Engagements. And it is available on the SAP Success Factors website, um, which you can go to or you can search through Google as well. But I encourage you to check it out. It's a good read. All right, so please be sure to subscribe to this podcast if you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find HCI on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on the YouTube channel HCI Talent. If you are listening on iTunes, we'd love to get your rating and your review. This helps other professionals and like-minded people discover our program. We'd like to close by saying a big thank you to our listeners for spending some time with us today. So from all of us at HCI, thanks so much for listening.